This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joanna Lillis about her new book, Dark Shadows, Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi, James, and thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Perhaps we can kick off by you telling us a little bit about yourself, sort of an intellectual biography, uh, how you got into journalism, how you got into Central Asia. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, well, I'm talking to you um, today from Kazakhstan. Uh, um, let, let, let's start in the present before we move to the past. Um, I'm uh, in Almaty, the city where I have been based for the last um, 14 years now. Um, so I came, um, I got, to Kazakhstan and I got into journalism really through um, through uh, post-Soviet studies, if you like. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I studied at university when the Soviet Union still existed, and I chose to study Russian um, at that time. And it was it was by that time the late eighties, um, and I studied Russian at university in the UK in University of Leeds, Russian and French actually, um, partly. Be- well, to a great degree, because I liked languages very much, um, but also because that was such an interesting time, um, and such uh, an interesting time um, for the Soviet Union. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev ha- ha- had come to power in the mid-80s and um, become a great reformer. There were these buzzwords, perestroika and glasnost, which uh, many people have probably forgotten today since it was 30 years ago. Uh, but it was all about change. Um, perestroika was about uh, trying to revamp the Soviet Union's creaking economy, which was obviously one of the things that eventually brought it down. Um, uh, it wasn't very successful. And glasnost was about giving people greater freedom of speech, um, or, or, or certainly to a degree, let's put it that way, allowing some kind of open debates in a country that was um, really heavily censored and where people were afraid um, to speak out. Um, and this kind of captured my imagination. I'd never obviously been to the Soviet Union at that time. When I first started learning Russian, I was 16 years old um, at, at a college. Um, but it captured my imagination. There was a program on TV, I, I recall. It was called Tavarishi, which means comrades. Um, and it was on the BBC, and it showed these ordinary Russians, um, and, and it showed them as people um, like us. Uh, and I guess that was exciting for me because we'd, you know, we'd grown up a, a fearing nuclear war and being really afraid of the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan once called it the evil empire. Um, and so back 
actually um, seeing this as something real and these people as ordinary people like us was, was so interesting to me. I studied Russian and um, that's what took me to the Soviet Union. I went to the Soviet Union um, for the first time to study in 1988. I went to what's now Belarus. At that time, it was called uh, Belarusia or the Republic of Belarusia. Um, I went to Minsk to do language courses. And the following year, I went to Ukraine, um, to Kiev, and um, studied there for three months. And afterwards, uh, just when I finished my studies, the Soviet Union actually collapsed. Um, and um, that was obviously an incredibly momentous historic event. And soon afterwards, I, I finished, uh, graduated, and I went back to work in Moscow, um, first as a teacher of English, and then later doing different jobs. Um, later, I, uh, I worked for the British Embassy for a while, not as a diplomat, but as a, in a job called the Ambassador's Social Secretary, organizing social events. And then I uh, moved into journalism, um, I got a job in uh, BBC monitoring. That's a department of the BBC that uh, that monitors um, media in different languages and from different countries, and um, provides um, information translations to um, other parts of the BBC and to an an analysts and so on. Um, so that's what took me into journalism, and eventually I moved uh, with BBC monitoring to Uzbekistan. So that's next door to where I am now. Um, that was 2001, right before the 9-11 attacks, in fact, a couple of weeks before. And um, those 9-11 attacks made uh, put, put Central Asia on the map for a while because um, the Americans opened bases uh, in the region. And, um, you know, Afghanistan was nearby. There was a, a war began and so on. And um, I worked at, uh, in Uzbekistan with BBC Monitoring for about four years. And when that contract finished, I finally uh, moved to Kazakhstan, where I am now, um, and began to freelance. And so that's what uh, brought me to the region, a uh, rather long-winded answer. <laughs> but um, that's what brought me into Central Asia and into journalism. Well, and it's produced an incredibly insightful, colourful and accessible portrait of one of the key countries in the region, uh, perhaps we can start with sort of what the importance is of the, the creation of Astana, both in terms of uh, a reinvention of a nation, but also in terms of what we recently saw with the renaming of the capital from Astana to Nur Sultan, President Nazarbayev's first name, and what that means for uh, for Kazakhstan, it's uh, external relations, but also the formation of, its, of, a, of a Kazakh identity. Yes, I mean, um, as you say, uh, the capital, Astana, um, and now Nusultan, has really been in the news this year because uh, when Nusultan Nazarbayev uh, resigned after 30 years at the helm of Kazakhstan in March, um, the, the really very first act of his uh, successor, who was uh, who became the interim leader and then the elected leader later, his, his more or less first act was to uh, propose renaming the capital. And of course, that, that decision was immediately rubber stamped. Um, and the city that was called Astana, which means capital, actually, um, then became Nur Sultan. Um, and that didn't go down too well with many people um, in this country. Um, but obviously, I'm um, talking about the, the symbolism of um, of that city, and um, that, that that really brought home, you know, just what um, the, how symbolic the city is meant to be, um, in or how symbolic it is in the mind of Nazarbayev himself, who obviously approved the decision, although he modestly, you know, 
or acted as if it was a, uh, someone else's initiative. Um, but it, it's a really symbolic city in his mind, um, in, in the way that he believes as the founding father of Kazakhstan, he built the nation and he built that city. And it's symbolic in the minds of everybody else too, um, the, the way that the new president immediately proposed naming it after the old president. Now, as I mentioned, that didn't go down too well um, with many people in the city and in the country. And immediately that decision was 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 uh, announced. People um, began to take to the streets in small numbers. Um, Kazakhstan uh, is, it, it was certainly at that time uh, not known for protest, but there have been a number of, of protests ever, ever since that time. But the renaming of the city, of the capital, Tunisutan, was one of the first um, acts of protest, uh, one of the first uh, um, things that happened that sparked acts of protest, which really are, are still continuing in a very small way, um, but in a country where people weren't were, were that willing to protest because of the risk of arrest. Um, and, and the fact that people were willing to take to the streets to express their discontent, um, their anger with the, with the high-handed decision to rename the capital without their consultation, tells you also just how much it means to people too. Um, so I think it's really, Astana, the, I think it, anybody who's looked at pictures of it can see it. It, it, it. it obviously is a vanity project. I mean, in it's been criticized, and so has Nazarbayev himself, um, because, uh, you know, many people see it as a real vanity project, just writ large across the step, a, 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 a monument to, to Nazarbayev himself, if you like, just uh, the amount of money that's been spent on it and the, and the, um, the way that, most of the decisions have been made, you know, at the official level without consultation of the people who live there. Um, but the fact is, it's, it's a, it, it really, it, it is consciously, uh, the city that's now called Nur Sultan is consciously presented as um, a nation-building project, as something that is intended to bind the people around the idea of Kazakhstan as an independent nation. It's meant to be a source of pride. And although it's certainly a quirky and unusual city, and in many ways it's not a very livable city in the, in, in the sense of it is extremely cold, it's extremely windy, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, many people uh, believe it's, it's rather badly designed. It's not designed with a pedestrian in mind, for example. Um, but it is intended to be a symbol of pride, and, um, and in many people, including the people who live there, are proud of Astana. And, um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why they were so frustrated at it being renamed without any consultation with them. So, yeah, Astana um, is something for the city now called Nursultan, is really something, um, if you want to understand Kazakhstan, you have to kind of get your teeth into, into that, but you have to look beyond the shiny, gold, quirky buildings. The style of architecture is so often criticised as dictator chic, and, it, and it, you know, it, it really is um, rather... Um, uh, exuberant and in many ways over exuberant um, but you have to look beyond that to see um, you know a, a sort of in some ways insecure nation trying to find its feet and um, and trying to create symbols to bind the public around of course as I say the protests over the renaming that city um, have, um, have, have have maybe have, certainly haven't been welcome I'm sure um, for Nazarbayev and for, for, for Kassim Jomotsukhaev, the president who, who proposed the renaming. Um, I think there was one very symbolic moment when um, a young woman um, uh, took, went walking around Astana, uh, around the city, um, shortly after the renaming, and, and she, she was merely saying um, in Russian, Nur um, uh, Sultan is not my, my capital and Tokayev is not my president. 
and that was a very symbolic moment of people kind of um, rejecting, not 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 necessarily um, as president or or even the name change, but rejecting the idea that decisions must be made for them all the time from above. They want to be part of it. I mean, no doubt the, the renaming of the city as Nur Sultan sort of reinforces the, the image of a monument to, to the president, to Nazarbayev. But if I'm not incorrect, in the originally when, when they first conceived of Astana and then went ahead to, to found it, there were also uh, significant geopolitical reasons in terms of uh, relations with uh, Russia as well as reasons that have to do with the uh, intercommunal or the demographic balance between various ethnic groups. Absolutely. I mean, um, in many ways, you know, it's quite frustrating that over all these years, Astana has always been depicted quite simplistically in much of the international media as this um, glossy gold vanity project and nothing else, just a monument to ego, egoism of, of a president. But it is so much more than that. Um, the, the geopolitical and also... Um, domestic uh, uh, considerations that were at play when the capital was moved um, in, the, in the 90s um, are still at play today indeed um, and, and that's why they're so important. So I think um, you know, there, there are many reasons have been cited for the, for, for the move of the capital from Almaty, the city where I now am, in the, in the south of the country um, to right up, up into the, the north or in, in the, the central northern part of the country. Um, and they have included, um, officially, there were reasons for cited such as space, because Almaty is surrounded by mountains, so it's, it's hard for it to expand. And it is a crowded city also. Um, also, um, you know, uh, uh, unofficially we heard, uh, well, officially we also heard that it's an earthquake zone that's dangerous for capital. That's certainly true. Uh, but there were other 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 gossip, uh, of course, that it's very quite near to the border with China, um, and that, that was believed to be a factor. But it, it, that's also, uh, in a way, there's a much more important important factor that I'll, I'll dwell on now because you know I don't think even <laughs> I don't think anybody really seriously believed that China was to storm over the border and um, and sort of invade. Um, so I think one of the real factors was um, ethnic considerations um, and they're sort of trying to get the center of gravity of the country into a more well more central geographical location, but also moving the capital of Kazakhstan into the sort of more Russian uh, heartlands, um, the, the, the heartlands where the Russian um, speakers are, are, are more located, which is, of course, naturally um, more in the north and uh, along that long 7,000 kilometer border with Siberia. Um, so, um, you know, there, there were in the, in the 90s, there were many, many cities which had, met, um, which had very large Russian majorities um, and um, both, uh, both uh, uh, Almaty and, and Astana also had very significant um, Russian majorities. Um, it wasn't called Astana at the time, of course. Um, but um, there, there's also, you know, many other cities all along that northern stretch that had really large um, Russian Russian majorities of, of ethnic of ethnic Russians. And I think there was a feeling that it would be better to govern the country from that area. And also it would, um, you know, this is not an official explanation. It's never been stated officially. But it seems um, very likely that, there, that that would also be a sort of way of Kazakhifying um, some, 
the areas um, to, to make uh, more Kazakhs live there because there are many Kazakhs involved in, in government, of course. Um, and so there would be a big move of, of Kazakhs. And there really has been. There's been a massive shift um, from, that, from, from the population of that city is now very, very, uh, I, I forget the figures exactly, but it's firmly, firmly Kazakh now. Um, so um, I think that that consideration of how to manage um, what was a large uh, ethnic Russian majority at independence, um, you know, that the, 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 there really was um, a lot of consideration given to how to cope with that. Um, because, of course, Russia is a very large um, and powerful neighbor, even in a weakened state that it was in in the 1990s. Um, and, uh, you know, it's important to remember in terms of the way Kazakhstan thinks about itself, the way officials think about it, and also the way people think about it, that at independence, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Kazakhstan was the only one of the former uh, 15 republics that made up the Soviet Union where the people... Uh, who's, um, who gave the name to the country, the Kazakhs in this case, were in a, mi a minority at independence. Now, they slightly outnumbered Russians, um, but all, all together, minorities, um, mi minorities made up 60% of the population, Kazakhs a little bit less than 40. Um, and uh, so it, this, this, this is all a, a very, um, has a big impact on, on the national psyche. And it had a big impact on all kinds of decision-making in the 90s, including where should we locate our capital. There's the whole issue of demographic balance. Uh, in some ways, I mean, there, there are vast differences too, but in some ways, it reminds me of Singapore, where, you know, in, you have in both countries an emphasis on, um, uh, on, on intercommunal harmony, on uh, a degree of social engineering also to, to maintain demographic balances uh, or in the case of Kazakhstan, actually change uh, demographic balances. But what strikes me is one of, one of the, uh, the major differences with Singapore is Singapore is a society that obviously has been economically and socially very, very successful. And one of those pillars of success is that virtually everybody in Singapore, every Singaporean, uh, irrespective of what his or her attitude is towards the government, has a, a feels that he or she has a stake in society uh, in terms of economic well-being, in terms of uh, uh, protection of, of, of certain rights. Uh, and you have less of that in Kazakhstan, uh, whether it's as a result of corruption whether it's a result of uh, uh, want needing to maintain relations with major neighbors like China and therefore not standing up for uh, ethnic Kazakhs in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. Uh, and so the question is, of course, that in that sense, the intercommunal harmony in Kazakhstan presumably is far more fragile. Well, I mean, this is a this is a, a very very big question. Um, you know, coming on for thirty years after independence, um, it's still um, you know one of the major preoccupations, I would say, of, of the government. Um, now, um, Kazakhstan has, has has you know spent the last thirty years trying to promote non-discriminatory policies towards um, its ethnic minorities, um, especially well, including uh, but also especially perhaps the the Russians um, who. Um, you know, I think um, 
there's been even an increased focus on on this in the last five years, um, and that's because of the invasion, um, the the annexation. I'm sorry, of Crimea um, in, in, from Ukraine by Russia, and also the the, the outbreak of separatist um, conflict um, on in the borderlands uh, of Ukraine, um, pro pro Russian separatists. Now, um, why why does that affect Kazakhstan? Well, it it, it it's because um, you know. Um, Vladimir Putin used um, allegations of linguistic and other discrimination against Russian speakers as, as partly as grounds for some of his actions. So Kazakhstan has, has, has um, always been very keen to um, demonstrate that, um, that it doesn't discriminate against minorities. Um, now, Russia enjoys a special status in Kazakhstan. It is, of course, the language of many people, the first language of many people, um, and, it, and there is a special uh, protection for it and uh, for it to be used in the public domain. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think um, that the, Nazarbayev himself always stressed that he, he wouldn't tolerate any linguistic uh, discrimination, um, any, any discrimination on the grounds of, of ethnicity. Um, now, um, one of the, um, let's say, one of the, uh, one of the um, effects of that um, bending over backwards to, to accommodate minorities has sometimes been um, that um, some certain Kazakhs maybe feel that, that not enough has been done to redress the wrongs of the Soviet past. When um, you know, uh, I think it, I think it is fair to say that Kazakhs suffered um, a fair amount of discrimination. Um, um, you know, they, they, it, in many ways, many many of the you know the, the language was under some threat because um, it, the, the speaking of Russian was um, encouraged so greatly, and many many families. Um, Simply adopted it as their first language, and uh, and so on. And, and many Kazakhs feel a lot of resentment about that past, and also about historical wrongs done by the Soviets um, to the Kazakhs, including um, the the man-made famine of the 1930s. You know, in which um, we still don't know how many people died, but it may be as many as, as two million. Um, as of those were Kazakhs, I'm, I'm talking only in Kazakhstan, not in. Um, other parts of the Soviet Union that were affected by famine in Russia and Ukraine, for example. Um, so I think um, there has been, the, the, this is, um, in a way, the resignation of Nazarbayev has also led to a bit of renewed debate about, about all this. Where, where, what is the role of Kazakh, the language? How do you promote um, Kazakh? How do you get more people speaking Kazakh? Um, and so on. And when it comes to state in society, um, I think your comparison with, with Singapore is very interesting. Um, Kazakhstan has, has, has tried, you know, um, sometimes clumsily, but to build a sort of civic identity where people feel um, feel um, like Kazakhstan is what they call Kazakhstan is, meaning that it's not about your ethnicity. It's like, a, let's say, British or, or, or American. Um, it's it's a, a common civic um, identity. And there's been great efforts to promote this, sometimes very clumsily. Um, I think many, you know, minorities in, in Kazakhstan, they do feel part of Kazakhstan. Most probably feel part of Kazakhstan. And those that don't probably left, for example, because, uh, you know, it's pretty easy for Russians, say, to move to Russia. Um, but um, when it comes to having a stake in society, I mean, in terms of economic well-being, I, I think, you know, they, probably opportunities are, are as great for minorities um, as they are for, for the Kazakhs. But I think when it comes to actual, let's say, political representation or the chances of getting um, jobs even in the civil service, um, it's clear that the Kazakhs have the edge there. And, and that's partly because there's a linguistic requirement 
the, the speaking Kazakh, uh, which is obviously quite quite so there should be. But um, you know, clearly Kazakhstan Kazakh is not taught um, as well as it should be in schools, and many Russian speakers come out without with very little knowledge, and so they are they 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 they, they do I think I think feel excluded in many ways from decision making. Um, and when it comes to also having a political stake in society, I mentioned um, before that. Um, you know, ever since uh, Nazarbayev resigned, there has been um, a spate of, of, of sporadic um, protests, street protests in Kazakhstan over various issues, um, including the lack of political voice and, and others. And I mentioned the renaming of, of Musultan um, as one of them. Um, but it's very notable um, to me, just um, observing the protests in, in Almaty, for example, that um, you know the protests really are led by Kazakhs, and there are very few, if any. Um, minorities um, usually present as protesters. And I think that might tell us, uh, well, I think this is my personal opinion, but I, I think it might tell us that, um, you know, people feel that they either don't have enough stake in, in the political process or even that, that, that they might not be welcome, their, their views might not be welcome, or that they either they don't care enough or they feel that they can't express um, any opposition uh, maybe because they don't feel as secure as, as perhaps the titular uh, majority. Um, so I think it's a it's a really complex um, question, and it, it's one that that's you know going to run and run. <laughs> I mean, Kazakh still um, nowadays uh, make up only only coming on to seventy uh, percent of the population, so there are still minorities you know make up a third. Um, so it's going to it's something that that um, I think Tokayev, the new president, is going to have to. Uh, um, obviously accommodate and work on. And in some ways, I think um, I, I, under Nazarbayev, problems were always brushed under the carpet, and not only when it comes to ethnic relations. It, it simply wasn't acceptable to, to, to accept that there might be anything to debate, that there might be any problems. Um, so it was all brushed under the carpet, and that has led, led to latent tensions. I mean, I, I certainly know that there are um, you know, many Kazakhs who feel that... Um, not enough has been done to redress the wrongs of the past, as I said, and that, um, that, that inclusive policies have sometimes been at their expense. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just saying that there is a, a sentiment out there among some people. Um, and so I think it's something that, um, that, that, that going forward, Kazakhstan is going to have to keep coping with. And one of the, um, the issues, I think, is, is going to be that question that, um, that you mentioned about people having a stake in, in society. How do you make sure um, that everybody has a stake in society, especially at the moment when they're trying to head off, the government is trying to head off a, a protest mood. I'm not saying it's, it's particularly threatening, but in terms of um, survival or something like that, the government's survival, but um, it is it is present and it is Kazakh-driven. So the, 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 or, you know, the, the um, authorities are, are going to have to cope with that. Um, so I think this is a very important um, factor that's obviously going to, going to keep being part of, of all the issues facing Kazakhstan as it enters this, this post-Nazarbayev era. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You uh, mentioned, of course, the impact of uh, the annexation of uh, Crimea 
as well as the uh, pro-Russian uh, insurgencies in two regions of Ukraine, which really uh, represents probably what is perceived uh, as as a as a as a far greater threat, and that's you know Putin's uh, Vladimir Putin's at least to some degree redefinition of Russia as a civilizational rather than a nation state. And he seemed to to emphasize that shortly after uh, the uh, the the events in Ukraine in 2014, when he uh, denied that uh, Kazakhstan had a history of statehood uh, and was sort of naturally linked to Russia. Uh, I presume that that really plays into all of this too. That plays into um, into all of this um, enormously. So it plays in geopolitically. It plays in, in terms of how Kazakhstan confronts uh, its identity and the identity of its people and how it promotes um, civic identity. Um, all of this uh, um, ha- has been really, um, I think, really on the government's mind uh, over the last five years, basically, or, or a little more now, um, since that, that conflict began in Ukraine. Um, now um, it was it was a really pivotal moment, I think, when when Putin made um, his remarks about Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan's um, short in his in his words statehood. Um, this was a really pivotal moment uh, for um, the government, and and it's probably worth just um, mentioning the context of that again. So um, at that time, he made the remarks about six months after he'd annexed Ukraine, and while, while the separatist conflicts were, were raging, well, they continued to certainly to to, um, to be present. But at that time, they, you know, the, the time when he made his remarks was the time when Russia was perceived um, you know, in the region as being really um, bellicose um, towards its, its neighbours. I mean, uh, annexing a piece of land and, and allegedly fermenting separatist conflict. Um, now, for Kazakhstan, um, many, many um, at the time, uh, many, for example, the Western media will, will drew parallels that Kazakhstan is very similar to Ukraine. And is, is Kazakhstan the next Ukraine and so on? And those parallels were based on a long border uh, with the neighbour and also a large Russian Russian-speaking minority. But of course, Kazakhstan always was keen to emphasize the differences, including like non-discriminatory policies that it pursued over all those years. Um, uh, but um, Putin actually made his rather derogatory remarks that he presented as being a compliment to Nazarbayev. Um, Shortly after Nazarbayev had mentioned, really in passing, I don't, I don't think he expected there to be a big media furore about this, but he had said um, that uh, Kazakhstan would uh, withdraw from the Eurasian Economic Union that had just been created, a Russian-led free trade zone that had just been created, if um, it felt its sovereignty was threatened. Now, as I say, I don't think he expected any media furore, and I don't think he meant that to be a threat to Putin. In fact, he made those remarks at the meeting in Kazakhstan. He may have not even expected them to be picked up. Um, some of the things he said in, in Kazakh often just uh, are not picked up beyond the Kazakh media. Um, but when those remarks were picked up and, and then presented as if it was sounded like some kind of threat, um, very soon afterwards, Putin made his remarks um, in response to what was clearly a, a plant question at, at, at a, an event in Russia, um, where a student um, sort of made some remarks about, including remarking, um, including uh, mentioning 
what she perceived as discrimination against Russians in Kazakhstan based on, uh, with no evidence provided, um, and then asking, you know, asking the question about uh, whether Kazakhstan might, might face a Ukrainian-style future after Nazarbayev. Now, that's clearly a threatening kind of a question, and nobody believes that that student thought it up herself. Um, it was obviously planted. And, and Putin then... Um, made his remarks that Kazakhstan had, had a very short statehood and he presented them as a compliment to Nazarbayev by saying that he built um, a state in a country that had no experience of it, you know, other than the last 20 odd years. Um, now, many people in Kazakhstan were absolutely furious with those remarks. Um, they found them insulting by a former colonial power. Um, they found them insulting to Nazarbayev. They found them insulting to Kazakhstan. And um, after that, we saw um, a, a renewed interest in Kazakh history driven at the official level, including celebrations of um, Kazakhstan's statehood, which um, is, is, is now celebrated dating back to 1465, when the first Kazakh Khanate was founded. So you can see that this, this uh, um, events in Ukraine, events in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, the, the alleged fermenting of separatist conflict in that neighbor, um, it has really been a seminal moment for Kazakhstan too. And I think that not only because of witnessing um, how Russia, how far Russia is willing to go in its aggression against a neighbor and a former Soviet country, but also uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, the sort of, um, it's, yeah, in terms of really the, the, maybe the duplicity of, uh, you know, of, of Vladimir Putin, uh, the, the, boldness in which he pursued his, his aims uh, and the, the rapidity with which it all happened and the um, ruthlessness as well, of course, of so many people dying. And I think that was probably a very shocking moment for Nazarbayev because, you know, he himself is, um, has always said that Russia is Kazakhstan's biggest ally. Now, of course, China is, is another big ally. But he's always said that Russia is Kazakhstan's closest ally and he's always um, they enjoyed a, a reasonably warm relationship with Vladimir Putin. So, the sight of, of, of um, a bellicose Russia slicing, snatching a bit of um, a land from a neighbour and um, you know, fermenting conflict uh, was not a pleasant one for him. I'm sure it was pretty much a wake-up call that, um, that, that, that maybe, maybe Russia isn't as, as, as close an ally as, as you've always thought or something like that. Of course, um, Kazakhstan remains a very close ally of Russia, but I do believe that was a, a big wake-up call for um, Astana, as it, as it then was, and for Nazarbayev. It strikes me that you sort of vividly describe uh, the significance of Putin's remarks when you uh, portray uh, sentiments among uh, the Kazakhstan's uh, Cossack and Slavic population groups. Yes, um, indeed. Now, I, um, I, uh, soon after Putin made those remarks, very, very soon after, um, less than a month, uh, I went, oh no, sorry, I'm sorry, it was before, in fact, uh, but uh, it was after, very soon after the annexation of Crimea, uh, a couple of weeks uh, later, I traveled to northern Kazakhstan um, to meet, um, to, to, to see how Russian communities felt about what was happening. It seemed to me a very important um, thing to do. Now, Kazakhstan itself, I mean, in terms of the government, uh, was, was caught on the geopolitical hop, if you like, and uh, was, was really struggling to formulate the correct diplomatic response. Russia is an ally, but on the other hand, a post-Soviet country that, that's smaller than Russian land, that is its neighbour, doesn't want to endorse the, the annexation of pieces of land from another one. Um, so that, that was one factor. Um, but also then Kazakhstan had to also, you know, uh, 
reconcile, you know, competing opinions within the country, um, uh, you know, among, say, maybe some of Kazakhs and among um, Russian speakers who are very much subject, you know, very, very, very susceptible to the, to the bellicose propaganda that was coming out of, of Russian TV. And Kazakhstan has to also reconcile those elements of the domestic um, population as well. And so I decided rather than just asking, you know, Russians in, in the south of Kazakhstan, where, where I live, where, where, where their population is smaller, to go to their heartlands and, um, and uh, just to see how people felt there. Um, now, um, I met um, some of the Slavic uh, community leaders. So the, the, these, are, these are not necessarily typical um, Russians because by, by the nature, they're more public figures and, um, and by their, perhaps by the nature of leading some, some of the groups, they, they, they're perhaps more political and more, um, you know, maybe, maybe more nationalistically inclined too. Um, but I, I thought it was important to talk to them about how they felt. Now, they were very, very, um, they were quite, Bellicose in, in, their, in their expressions um, about, say, America, um, about the West generally as being duplicitous, and and um, yeah, they 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 were certainly um, in favour of Russia's position, in favour of the annexation of Crimea, um, and so on. Um, so that was um, an eye opener. Um, I also found among ordinary people on the streets that there were very few people who would actually question um, that, and and that that most people. I spoke to, um, in fact, all of them. <laughs> um, that when I when I suggested, well, how would how would you feel if that happened to Kazakhstan? Nobody could even imagine um, that that could be that could happen to Kazakhstan because I think because they 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 basically more or less bought the Russian TV line that Ukraine had brought it on its on itself. Um, so in other words, if Kazakhstan didn't do anything wrong there, that wouldn't happen to Kazakhstan. But I think I did find that that was um, some rather some you know the the level of support for the Kremlin. Um, the level of support for Russia and the fact that some people are clearly living with their eyes on, on over the border rather than, you know, looking towards Kazakhstan, their own country. I think that that, that was a factor. Um, and obviously, Russian TV, um, it, you know, uh, it, it, it has a massive influence on, on, on people's mentalities. Um, but I think it, it did also bring home to me the level of the challenge that Nazarbayev um, was trying to cope with. Um, really, uh, and 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 one, you know, the thing that he had on his mind ever since uh, independence—the fact that we've got this very large Russian minority, not so large nowadays, but still nearly twenty percent—you've um, got, and and you need to accommodate their feelings, and you also need to be sure not to antagonise Russia. And in twenty fourteen, it became very clear what the consequences might be if um, any country does antagonise Russia. You know, serious consequences: losing territory and having uh, separatist conflict. So I think a big wake-up call there, and um, and also uh, another reminder of the scale of the challenge facing Kazakhstan as it tries to reconcile, you know, sometimes um, competing um, agendas among its own population, among with the Kazakh majority, with the with the you know the large Russian minority, and of course other minorities too. Uh, the the Kazakhstan has had a, a very actually successful. Uh, program dating back to shortly after independence uh, of uh, trying to persuade uh, ethnic Kazakhs and uh, the Kazakh diaspora to return to Kazakhstan. And it's been successful. We've had about roughly a million people who have returned. And all of this obviously predates uh, what happened in Ukraine in 2014 and Putin's subsequent remarks. But I wonder whether the significance of that repatriation program 
has uh, has changed or has been uh, enhanced by what uh, the events in 2014? Um, yeah, this um, this program I, in Kazakhstan um, it's called the Waroman program, um, informally actually. Waroman means returnee, um, and some people find that that, that um, ironic because in many cases, you know, the people in most cases, in fact, people some of the people had never set foot in Kazakhstan before they supposedly returned. But it's considered a return to the hot historical homeland. Let's let let's say that that's the way the ancestral. Um, heartland, whatever. And that's why it's called that. Currently, there's a big debate going on, actually. Um, the president, Tokayev, has suggested that the word should be changed to can- um, and the word for people should be kandas, uh, which comes from the word for blood, meaning we're of the same blood. Um, but that's, um, in a way, by the by. Um, the fact is that this, this, this program has, it has been successful in many ways, as you said. A million um, Kazakhs have come from uh, all kinds of countries to Kazakhstan over the last... Um, like nearly 30 years now, um, and they've come from countries near and far. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've come from other post-Soviet countries where, where the lifestyle is similar, um, for example, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Russia, um, but, and they've also come from countries much further afield, in, such as Iran, um, also China, um, and, and, and Turkey, for example, Mongolia. Um, so this, this um, program has been successful in terms of getting large numbers of Kazakhs to move to Kazakhstan, which has also boosted the ethnic Kazakh population in Kazakhstan. Um, it's also encountered many, many difficulties, um, and the government is, is fairly open about a lot of them. Um, it, it certainly it's slowed down a lot in the last um, few years. Um, you know the numbers have have reduced over the last few years of people coming, and that that that's um, that may be partly related to financial issues too, because they get certain amounts of support, and um, there have been certain you know economic blips over over the last few years that have had an effect. But there's also been um, problems of integration that the government acknowledges um, that that I think were were very unexpected um, for 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 many people. Um, for example. Uh, you know, Kazakhstan is still in in parts of Kazakhstan are still very Russian speaking, and, and it can be difficult to get a job unless you speak Russian. Now, I think many of the Kazakhs who, especially in the earlier years, came here, um, they certainly didn't expect that they, that they they came here as fluent Kazakh speakers, and they wouldn't expect to find that integration problem, that linguistic problem. They wouldn't expect to encounter that in Kazakhstan. It was a big shock for um, many of them, and um, you know, I think some of some people who've come from different kinds of backgrounds um, that maybe and then moved to Kazakhstan found it very difficult to adapt and the government has acknowledged much of that and um, so as I say the program has slowed down um, in, in fact um, there was a there was a major change announced announced to the program um, in, in 2014 right around the time of the conflict in Ukraine uh, the government announced that it would be directing migrants um, uh, northwards um, and um, you know like, as a stipulation um, people moved to Kazakhstan, they would have to settle in northern regions and also in one western region. Now, the government presented that as being about uh, where labour is required, you know, where there are labour shortages. Um, but many people believe that was another attempt to sort of, um, well, um, gerrymander, if you like, the, the, the sort of population and try and make Russian regions more more Kazakh. And, and, and for various factors... Um, have actually made that happen. I mean, there there, there are very few places now in the, the north of Kazakhstan where, where Russians are still in, in a majority, uh, not so many places, and not so, and, uh, um, I think only one region left um, where they're, where they're regionally in the, in, among the majority. 
Um, and um, so that's, that, all that has had an effect. And, and, and people, you know, it was very significant. I think people felt it was significant that those migrants were directed northwards um, immediately after all the conflict in Ukraine began. Um, and also migrants were directed from the south of Kazakhstan, um, which is Sharpur, which is mainly uh, ethnic Kazakh, um, also directed, uh, given given perks to the north. So it's clear that there were some, I mean, obviously labor shortages were one issue, but there's very much a, a feeling in Kazakhstan that this was about demographics, um, the government's attempts to influence demographics and make the north of Kazakhstan more Kazakh. Um, so the program, the, the, the program, continues, um, but as I say, it, it, it's, it's much, the flow of migrants is much slower now. Um, and, um, you know, the, the integration problems still remain a factor. And there also remains, there is also resentment among um, Kazakhstan-born Kazakhs sometimes that they, 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 you know, in many, as in many countries, there's always fear of, of migrants and, and people feel that they get uh, perks that, that uh, you know, for example, all Kazakhs get. Um, the perks have changed very much over the years. Um, that at one point there was cash perks. I, I don't think there are anymore, but they, they, they can be, you know, anything from access to microcredit and help with housing and jobs and so on. Um, so the program continues and I think it will always continue. Um, probably, I can't imagine any president coming along and cancelling it because it would be a it would be very emotionally um, uh, problematic, I think, for, for for many Kazakhs, even if they don't always support it. Um, but I think um, it was it was something that Kazakhstan did. It presented um, the program as uh, to, to to bring attract Kazakhs to Kazakhstan as sort of put, trying to put to to redress the wrongs of history. Uh, you know, for example, you know, many many Kazakhs ended up in foreign countries. Um, because they, they, their families fled famine, they fled to survive, or they, they may have fled war, revolution, um, and so on. So that was about putting the wrongs of history right. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that's still a big factor. And there were still um, certainly Kazakhs left abroad. I mean, they, they, there are still believed to be 1.5 million um, Kazakhs in China. Um, now, in Xinjiang, most of them live in Xinjiang, um, the, the area that you mentioned. And this is, uh, this is also the, this, this migration program in Kazakhstan also is involved with the, this whole current major controversy ongoing in the world about the treatment of ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, um, uh, about their incarceration in camps that the Chinese government says are vocational training centres and about general attempts to, um, to, to well, that critics believe are attempts to eradicate their religion and their culture and to, to make to make them part of the mainstream, if you like. Um, so the Waterman program, because um, you know people come and go from Kazakhstan, or, or certainly in the past, come and go from Kazakhstan um, and between Kazakhstan and China, and many of these people are these um, migrants who've moved here or want to move here. This has also had an impact um, on, on 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 that, and um, it also means that Kazakhstan has been a um, one of the places where much news has come out about the camps from Kazakhstan uh, because. Um, people with experience of them uh, have moved to Kazakhstan and, and spoken to the media. Uh, which leads us almost automatically to uh, Kazakh, particularly uh, non-governmental non perceptions of China and Chinese ambitions uh, and, and attitudes towards Kazakhstan. Yes, um, indeed. This is very topical right at the moment because we, we saw, uh, we've, we've seen um, a, a sort of series of anti-China protests over recent weeks, um, 
that have been um, the, the primary motivating uh, factor uh, for the protesters has been um, that, that to protest against what they see as um, China Chinese economic expansion in Kazakhstan. That's been one of the, the that's been the key driver of these protests. Um, uh, but also, you know, at some protests, there has been raised um, the question of the treat of ethnic Kazakhs along with Uyghurs, um, the Xinjiang's largest, um, uh, they're much greater in number in Xinjiang and Kazakh, um, and other minorities. Uh, these have also been raised at protests in Kazakhstan. Um, now, um, among ordinary people, there, there is enormous suspicion um, of China in in Kazakhstan, um, it was a, it was an, it was a factor in 2016 in bringing people out onto the streets for the largest protest in probably 25 years in Kazakhstan. Um, it was protests; those were protests against land reforms. But one of the driving forces there was the the, the fear that it would be Chinese investors who would come and and um, lease or, or buy Kazakh land, and that was a driving factor. Even though on paper there was you know, nothing about Chinese investors per se. Um, now, here we're also seeing the protests that have been um, taking place in Kazakhstan recently um, have also um, been very much about perception. Um, uh, the protests are not particularly large. I mean, they will they, they rarely number more than, um, well, probably not even more than 100 people. Um, but, um, they, but they have been um, sustained and they have been, been they have uh, taken place in various cities, not just in, for example, Almaty, where I am, the largest city, or, or in Nur Sultan, the capital, but in various cities. In fact, the, this state of protest began in um, an oil town called Shangozen in the west of Kazakhstan um, uh, a, a couple of months ago. Um, so what we see in these protests, we see um, people um, just expressing their concerns that, that China is expanding too greatly into Kazakhstan. Um, and that the, the concerns are not always based on fact. Uh, one of the driving forces in this state of protest has been the idea that Kazakhstan is going to move, uh, that, I'm sorry, that China is going to move obsolete factories to Kazakhstan. And this was based on, 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 one, on, on one comment um, made by the government a few years ago um, that there might be some uh, production facilities brought here, but, the, but there have been no programs established, and so people are actually protesting about something that isn't even happening. Uh, but the problem is perception, and um, Kazakhstan is, is a very, um, you know, a, a key partner of China on for its Belt and Road Initiative to to sort of uh, develop global infrastructure with China at the hub. And Kazakhstan, obviously, as a, as a neighbour uh, with a long border with China, is, is sort of gateway towards the West, towards Russia and the North and Europe, and then, of course, also towards um, through the Caspian Sea towards the Caucasus and Turkey. Um, so, so there are many pro projects um, underway in Kazakhstan. The latest um, tally says there are 55 projects um, worth um, around $27 billion. Now, the government says this is much-needed investment for Kazakhstan, but the people are very suspicious. Um, they, they, they seem to have very heightened suspicion of China um, in a way that, for example, they don't of their other large neighbor, Russia. Um, they also, uh, I think there's also an element that the government is, is poor at communicating and um, that there is a lack of transparency in any case over the deals. People are worried about debt traps, um, but given that since the terms of the deals are not um, in the public domain much of the time, they don't have any uh, way of, of seeing if their worries are valid. Um, and generally speaking, as I said, there's high suspicion of China 
of a big neighbor, of a very populous neighbor. And of course, now this is now fueled by um, the, the very, very you know, well-known reports of gross and blatant human rights abuses against ethnic Kazakhs and other minorities in Xinjiang have obviously um, contributed to um, Sinophobia in Kazakhstan. Despite the protests and also labor unrest that you've had over the years in, uh, in Kazakhstan, it seems to me that much of your book sort of sketches a history from since independence of an effort to maintain authoritarian uh, governance structures, a slide into greater repression of basic rights, and also a struggle to come to grips with Stalinist disruption, both of demography as well as Kazakh identity. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, uh, uh, those the, the two things you, you've just mentioned are, are something I was very focused on and something I very much wanted to explore in Dark Shadows. Um, let's um, maybe start with the, the second one you mentioned, which the struggle to come to grips with um, the upheavals that Kazakhstan faced in the Soviet Union, and particularly in the... Um, Stalinist period, uh, the demographic upheavals that drove Kazakhs into a minority that, that led to, to the deaths of so many Kazakhs, um, and also the um, you know the environmental and ecological upheavals, the um, terrible um, you know the tragedies of the of the Aral Sea um, that that, that um, almost shrunk to disappearance and is now being a little bit restored at least on the Kazakh side, but um, a, a terrible environmental and health um, catastrophe for the for the people there, and also um, things like semi palatins the nuclear testing ground um, that's still affecting the lives of people who weren't born when it closed out in ninety one. Um, they they you know they are now second third generation victims. So I wanted to explore all of that. Um, um, because, in fact, um, partly because it, it's a, a, much of it remains brushed under the carpet in Kazakhstan itself. People people are aware of, of, of much of, the, of this, but you know, Kazakhstan's always, always treated this history very, very gingerly for fear of antagonising Russia as the former colonial master. It's it's very much treated um, such things as the famine as a collective tragedy, um, unlike in Ukraine where blame is apportioned and 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 it's officially characterised as a, a genocide um, led by the Soviets. Um, so I wanted to explore all of that because all of that really shaped, um, the, the, particularly that that tumultuous Stalin um, period, it really shaped um, Kazakhstan today. And Kazakhstan is still grappling with the consequences in terms of demographics, in terms of ethnic relations, in terms of health, in terms of the environment. Um, and the other, as you said, um, the other um, thing I explore at some length in Dark Shadows, really in, in the third part of it, um, is um, is uh, the first part of it uh, is called actually making of a potentate. So that tells you something about the focus um, of that of that part of the book. Um, but I wanted to explore that authoritarian element of the the way that um, Nazarbayev really built this state um, and and built it sort of uh, if you like in his image or, or or created it partly for himself to rule. I mean he. he he, I'm sure he's always believed that he's he's doing the best because of Stan, and um, you know he's a great believer, obviously in stability. But um, he's certainly not a great believer listening to dissenting opinions. And I wanted to tell some of the stories of the people who suffered, um, you know, because of that unwillingness um, to 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 cater for any kind of dissent. Um, now, this I think is a really um, big and important. Um, 
factor now. Because what we are seeing with the transition, um, as soon as Nazarbayev stepped down and as soon as Tokayev stepped into his shoes, you know, we've seen this state of unusual protest for Kazakhstan where, where protesters have, have over over the last, you know, however many years have been quite reluctant to take to the streets mostly because they can be arrested and sometimes they, they often go to jail for up to 15 days, but sometimes they can be charged with um, very serious crimes and go to jail for years. Um, so that's one of the reasons that has been a factor that until Nazarbayev's designation, the protests are not that common. Now now we're seeing that people are, are, are really testing the boundaries um, of what is now possible in Kazakhstan because people are, uh, are you know, they may have put up with um, Nazarbayev's um, you know, rather um, rather authoritarian rule for, for many years. But now that there is a window of opportunity for change, we're seeing that people want to seize it. And so what what, do, what, what lessons should we draw from that? I think we, we can draw the lesson that for all of, of, of the, um, you know, suppression of dissent, which I track very closely in, in Dark Shadows, I tried to show how the political opposition was wiped out. There were no opposition parties in Kazakhstan, really, to speak of um, in legal existence anymore. Um, I tried to show how the media was um, was uh, muzzled and how also, you know, religious um, religion was called into state-sanctioned boundaries, civil society too. So it really was across the board. But now we see that people, um, despite all of that, there is a very vibrant civil society in Kazakhstan and people you know, many people are not willing to put up with authoritarian rule, and you know we see we also see promising shoots. We see Tokaya promising a listening state. We see him promising reform, to some degree, uh, for example, on the right to peaceful protest. And we see, as I said, people are pushing the boundaries and um, saying that they no longer accept, you know, the, the pact and they no longer accept authoritarian rule. So this is going to be a very interesting few years for Kazakhstan coming up. I've jotted down many more questions that I wanted to ask, but I'm afraid that we're nearing the end of this. We could probably chat for at least another hour. Uh, But before I let you go, uh, Joanna, tell us where you go from here uh, in terms of what, what what you plan to do next. Well, there are lots of interesting opportunities um, happening because it's it's exciting times in Central Asia, really. Um, I think um, for me personally, and for many people in Kazakhstan, this is a really, really interesting and exciting um, time. It's a once in a generation time of political change, um, and uh, you know we just discussed how people are trying to seize that moment to, to drive change, and um, so you know there are lots of interesting stories to report. Now, because of that, I'm pretty busy with my actual reporting. Um, right at the moment and also because we've got the, the other um, you know the other big country of Central Asia is Uzbekistan and that's also going through some really interesting times um, three years ago um, the death of the president um, uh, Islam Karimov the dictator um, has, ha, has brought um, an unexpected period of reform under the new president Shafat Mizioyev and they're three years into that reform period now um, there's, there's many big changes taking place there and I'm also busy reporting on those so um, even just the, the actual reporting for me there's a, a, an awful lot on uh, but I'd still like to you know look at other projects um, um, other books perhaps um, I'm actually thinking that um, Kazakhstan that there's much that would make um, you know interesting fiction now um there, there aren't many people who can make their living writing fiction, but it is something I would like to look into. How could some Kazakhstan's really fascinating history be dramatized in fiction? Or how could, um, you know, some of the modern the, the, the modern times too, there have been some pretty dramatic moments that could be uh, could make for some interesting fiction. So anyway, I'm open to 
I'm open to all ideas. As I say, currently very busy with reporting on, particularly on Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, but also Kyrgyzstan, where there's uh, been the arrest of the former president, a trial about to start. But I think there's uh, probably some interesting projects ahead too. Joanna, indeed, you live in what the Chinese call interesting times with lots of options. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best. And thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.